It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We're going to talk about Patch Tuesday, the updates, and whether they'll affect XP. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, well, your questions and Steve's answers. We've got eight great ones coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 459, recorded June 10th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 189. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device. For 30% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now. Use the code SN30 to save. And by Citrix ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with Citrix's ShareFile. Try ShareFile today for 30-day free trial. Go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter security now. And by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use the offer code SECURITY now. You'll get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones online with the help of this guy right here, Mr. Stephen Gibson of GRC.com, a security guru, the author of SpinWrite, the world's best hard drive, maintenance recovery utility, the guy who discovered spyware, coined the term, and wrote the first anti-spyware tool, and on. I can go on and on and on, but let's just say hi to Steve, and welcome to the show, a Q&A episode. Yes, yes we got 189, and... Um, uh, I have to say that as I was going through the mailbag, not surprisingly, almost everything was about uh, net neutrality from week before last or TrueCrypt from last week. And, I, I, I you know, <laughs> there wasn't really much more to say about those things that we had already said. I managed to find some other things. But uh, you know, it just my shows you is, those are hot button topics that everybody's interested in, right? Yes, and they they are admittedly sort of political, and there's like gray areas. And boy, I mean, it's not like how many bites are in a packet, of which we all pretty much can agree on. It's so loosey goosey, and so I mean, opinions were from one end of the spectrum to the other, but there really wasn't anything significant that i had that i saw that seemed uncovered yeah, from it was, it was, you know, you know, i'm sure it was mostly steve you're so brilliant leo's such an idiot and like that or and, the other way or around. the other way around and because yeah. we disagreed a little not disagreed but we had different maybe opinions about the true crypt whether to keep using true crypt and brett glass sure. and i disagreed somewhat vehemently although brett's been very gracious about it and has continued the conversation on twitter yeah with a lot of people so that's good yeah certainly good to hear other points of view well, we have um, uh, this is our second Tuesday of the month, and it is a patch Tuesday, and there are two interesting 
critical vulnerabilities and we'll need to see whether they reach down and affect XP. It's not clear yet. We'll talk about those. Um, I did spend some time looking at Google's uh, browser-based PGP, so I have some comments about that. We have more trouble with OpenSSL that came to light, of course, the day after we did last week's podcast when all these things happened, like TrueCrypt and so forth. Uh, we had the first internet registry to hit critical levels of remaining IPv4 addresses, some interesting iOS 8 privacy news, some typical nonsense from the register.co.uk, uh, a, a couple things about network congestion that I thought were interesting. Uh, and of course, it's a Q&A. So we've got uh, some feedback and interactions from our listeners. A so, jam-packed show today. A great podcast, I That's think, as we, we generally have. Yeah, we're, we're, we're always uh, lots to talk about when it comes to security. Despite your concerns early on that we would Boy, we sure run, out. run out. <laughs> run out of things to say. You know, and I, I, every so often I see people tweet, Steve, you know, you and Leo should do this three times a week. How about a There's Monday, Wednesday, to Friday? Do, but I, yeah. Like, ah, Steve's got yeah. other, other things to do, too, you know. He's not just sitting there waiting to get on the air. Hey, can I talk a little bit before we go on? Because I know you, there's lots of news, you know, Patch Tuesday and all. But uh, a little bit about IT Pro TV. Our buddies, they're the guys who sent me the giant mug. And there's an even bigger mug. IT Pro TV, it says, hearts twit. Aw, thank you, uh -huh. Tim uh, and Don. They are the principals there. And they have created something I think is hugely valuable. An easy, entertaining approach to... IT training in particular to getting those certs that can make such a difference in your career. If you want to get into IT or perhaps you're in IT and you want to polish your skills, you've got to visit IT Pro TV. In fact, if you go to itpro.tv slash security now, we've got a special offer for you. I'll tell you about that in just a bit. But they have the CompTIA stuff, the A plus, Net plus, Security plus training. Uh, they have uh, CASP, Strata, Linux training too. Uh, they have courses for Microsoft folks, the MCSA and uh, stuff. They have Cisco's certs, the new security certs, the ISC squared certs. They're being taught by Adam Gordon. Those are awesome. You see, they're going to add stuff for Apple, VMware, and Office, too. And, you know, when they say coming soon, they mean it because there are 30 hours of new content added every week. That's because their model is kind of like the TWIP model. They, they do it live on the air. So you can watch live, you can chat live with them, and uh, participate in uh, the courses. They, they look, if you've ever looked at them, quite a bit like uh, Tech TV or Twit. In fact, they kind of emulated the Twit setup. Much of the hardware and so forth uh, is the same. They have free episodes online if you want to see more at itpro.tv. But let me tell you about our offer here, because there's some really, really great stuff. ITProTV you you get they have a new web interface they just put up uh, a, a a new uh, learning management system to track your progress a virtual machine sandbox lab so that you can even if you don't have the windows servers and all the stuff that you need you can actually uh, set it up uh, using a virtual machine and practice and learn and actually screw up a network without any doing any harm and all of that's great 
Included in your subscription is the $79 value measure up practice exam. So you can take those exams before you have to take them for real. And if you're an annual subscriber, you can even download audio and video episodes and watch them on your tablet as you're on the airplane or in the car. Corporate accounts also available, but this is such a great thing. You get the way they do it, you get the run of the site uh, for $57 a month. You can every video. Every watch live, participate all you want, see the live chat, ask questions. Fifty seven dollars a month, or for five hundred seventy dollars, you get a whole year. But because they're fans of Twit, and because Twit really inspired what they're doing here, uh, you have a special offer waiting for you. Just use the offer code SN for Security Now three zero. There's Don giving you the guided tour. SN three zero, and uh, you'll get thirty percent off your subscription. Not for the first month or year. But forever, it is now as little as $40 a month or $399 for the entire year. That is a great deal. SN30, not for the first month of the first year, but for the life of your account. If you want to become an IT professional, if you want to polish your skills, you can go directly to specific questions, specific chapters in the in the course. I, I think this is the best way to learn. You know, cheaper than the learning materials, a lot less expensive than a technical college, but you will learn, I'm telling you. At your own pace, in the way you uh, like to learn. ITPro.tv slash security now and uh, the offer code SN30 if you want to sign up. All right. Here we go. It is Patch so, Tuesday. Uh, yeah. Um, and we'll have to see whether anything happens from this. Uh, this, is, this is potentially bad news for XP. At this point... None of this is in the wild. These are vulnerabilities which have been found in Windows. They affect all across the board Microsoft operating systems. There's a problem um, in the uh, – well, there's a problem in both desktop and server uh, OSs that is remote code execution in the Unicode scripts processor – which is, it's a DLL, USP10.dll. However, in order to exploit it, you have to have WebDAV, the web distributed authoring and versioning uh, system running, and you have to have your ports 139 or 445, which are the traditional um, you know, Windows file sharing ports, exposed to the internet. Well, routers block that, ISPs block that typically, and the firewall, the Windows firewall blocks that. So, you know, this doesn't seem like there's any way to access this vulnerability from behind all of those wrappers. Um, but we'll have to keep an eye on it. The, the, the second problem is an image parsing vulnerability uh, in GDI+. And, of course, these are a problem because once upon a time, Microsoft moved GDI from user space down in the kernel when they wanted to increase performance. And so now this is kernel resident code where there's a known problem. Um, so the, you know, if this is going to get exploited, the, the, the path will be that these updates come out and people will will reverse engineer the an exploit from the difference in the code between 
this month and last month and see if they can turn that into something that attacks XP. Computer World had an article that I originally had in my notes, but I thought, ah, it doesn't quite make the cut, which was saying, you know, where's the XPocalypse? And, you know, but, you know, it might be upon us. that This could get leveraged into that. So we'll have to keep our eyes out and see if, if that, in fact, happens, in which case, you know, I'll be the first to say, okay, it, XP is no longer safe to use because someone actually did find a way of exploiting those systems. But now, you've been pretty clear that you feel like it's safe to use XP, at least for now, right? Well, if we if take the position... Doing, if you know what you're doing. That ev- yeah, if we take the position that everything has bugs. I mean, we're about to talk about a a serious man-in-the-middle attack on OpenSSL that's been there for 15 years. Oh, man. So... So it's not, I mean, and, and all the evidence demonstrates that everything has problems. So it's, it's the known problems which are exploitable that are a concern rather than just like, you know, I mean, if, if, we, if we were worried about using any software, we ought to just completely disconnect from the net and say, okay, well, I, I refuse to use insecure software. All software has some potential insecurity. So, you know... I can't use any software. Kind of the point that TrueCrypt guys were making, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. And my and my position is, if you know, since we live in the real world, we're going to and and you know, there's a choice between being proactive and reactive, and and the notion of open source it enables proactivity, but no one really seems to take advantage of it. You could be proactive by reading the source and find the problems and fix it. But in the real world, again, we end up being reactive. We f- discover a problem and everyone scrambles around to patch it. So that's the world we live in, is, is unfortunately a reactive world. And so, you know, that's where I'm coming from, where, for example, with TrueCrypt, it, as far as we know, there are no problems. When we learn differently, then it becomes insecure because what you know what was always there we then find out about and and the point is that that's when probably the bad guys find out about it. They probably didn't know either and and the good thing is we're generally pretty good about discovering exploitation, so when something gets exploited. We're pretty good about recognizing, ooh, something just went bump. How did they do that? And then the word goes out. You know, that's the whole um, intrusion detection system idea. So, you know, it's not an ideal world, but it it is the one that we've ended up with. So I, I don't want so people this- to think that they're – yes, of course we're reactive, but I don't want people to think that we're not paying attention. I mean, all good security – all good software is security audited, right? I mean – uh, companies like Microsoft and Apple go through their, you know, they have audit processes. They go through their code. They look for flaws no, proactively. Yeah, nobody, nobody wants to have flaws. Yet I'll never forget Steve Ballmer dancing around the stage before the release of XP saying it's the most secure operating system we've ever produced. It was the least secure operating system they had ever produced. And, and I, at the time I said, you cannot declare that. No one can declare that something is the most secure, blah, whatever, 
it's it's history that judges that after the fact for exactly this reason and that is that you know something really simple you know you make a cube and you say this is this is the most perfect cube ever made well it's simple enough that you can probably you know stand by that assertion but an operating system is so complicated and has so many moving pieces that there are going to be problems that no one has found. And here we are later still finding them in an operating system which is so old that its support has been discontinued after a decade. We're still finding problems with it. So, you know, yeah, all we can do, is, and, and that's why every month that we talk about this, I, we run through these patches and I say to people, update your system. Because now that we know about these problems, now, I mean, even if it's been latent, even if the problem's been there for 10 years, if no one knew about it, then, okay, we wish it weren't there, but it's not hurting us. It's when it becomes public that it has the potential to hurt us because bad guys find out at the same time we find out. And so, and, and in fact, th this ridiculous, oh no, I, I'll, I'll stay on script here. Otherwise, I get myself tangled up. But, but this ridiculous <laughs> story, this ridiculous story about the register, I just cra it cracked me up. But anyway, so we, so again, second Tuesday of the month, everybody should update. Now, I haven't yet done it, but I do have a tablet running Service Pack, X, Windows XP Service Pack 3. I'm going to add that registry key and just see if it updates itself. I ought to have a system which is using that hack to pretend to be an embedded XP and just keep an eye on these things because these patches are probably available sure. for XP embedded right. and anybody can turn their XP into one that looks like that. You could be the canary in the mine that lets us know that it's working when it stops working, if it does anything, if it breaks anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. and you don't mind losing that tablet? No, it's no. it's just. Does it, it go I, online? I, it's, I, no, I have it. I have it. Yeah, I have it plugged in. It's got my stamps and a electronic scale. It, it's my little postage station. <laughs> and, uh, good. That's a good use for it. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, yeah, uh, it, consider it in our chat room. Consider it one in our chat room has tried it, and at this patch Tuesday, there is an update via that. So. And what was interesting was that Microsoft, I looked for it, had absolutely no mention of XP embedded in their security release. Now, I wonder, they have to be publishing that somewhere. So maybe there's a different link that we're not looking at right now for like the people who are licensed XP right. embedded XP users. They've got to know that they're getting patches and so forth. So there's probably a channel somewhere for them. Uh, but anyway, thank you for the feedback from the from the chat room. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I mean, this is what we believed. And what was it? Is it five years? I think it's through 2019, if I remember right. Another five years worth of. And, and this is not. I, and we I, should well, be clear. This is not. There are two things when you say the word embedded. It could be the embedded version of Windows. This is not that. This is Windows XP for embedded systems, which is the same bits as Windows XP. And correct. so you change the registry entry. You say, no, no, I'm not plain xp and in fact you could make a strong case it's a point of sale system you got there it's a it's windows xp for embedded systems Good it's a, all it does is postage yeah. you kind of do have an embedded system there but that's different so, from X, windows embedded which is a different operating system okay yes, yes. correct yeah. and embedded 
was really cool. I looked at it a lot, actually, uh, once upon a time, considering it as maybe the platform for Spinrite. Uh, but I'd still be paying licensing fees, and so it just didn't make any sense. Yeah, you put Spinrite as on FreeDOS, which is a free DOS. Which is now, it's yeah. All, and it's lightweight. I, it seems silly to have Windows when you know, all you need is a yeah. command line. Yeah, well, I just like the idea of, you know, a strong... A strong platform. And, and anyway, the, the the point I was going to make was that it is what they did was they they broke it up into tiny pieces. So you're able to, you know, they 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 componentized it. So so that you're able to make a much much smaller footprint in terms of like ROM for Windows by just discarding all this nonsense that you know Windows brings along. I mean. You know all the the stuff that an end user would need. You know, like Internet Explorer that you can't get rid of unless you use the embedded version, where you just turn off the checkbox and it builds one without it. So, anyway, uh, that was what that was. Um, so there's been some controversy about uh, Google's the so-called end-to-end is the official name of this thing, which is their browser-based PGP for email. Um, I'm impressed by everything I've read um, that that they understood the danger and have, like, faced up to the fact that some people consider the phrase secure JavaScript crypto to be an oxymoron. That is, you know, there's there's a famous blog posting, JavaScript considered or JavaScript crypto considered hazardous or something or malignant or, <laughs> and and the problem is, I mean, and and it's an understandable concern, and that is that you are inherently downloading code that the browser runs, which is which has to be secure in order for it to do its job. And it just makes old timers uncomfortable when the browser is connecting to a server to download code that has to be secure. But with sufficient protection and with a real understanding of the dangers, Google makes the point that you know, they're going in with their eyes open. They're not wanting to hurt anybody. And they understand the risks. For example, critics have said, well, you just don't have enough control in JavaScript. For example, you're, you're using a virtual machine to interpret your JavaScript. Um, and it's doing memory management. Well, memory can be sensitive. You can have stuff in there that you don't want to let loose. And the Google's guys say yes, and we've, we're protecting ourselves from that. And they said, well, but okay, what about timing attacks? You don't have any control over timing the way you do if you're in a, in a lower-level compiled language. And the Google guy says yes, and we've done everything we can and you know given the fact that it's it's submerged in a bunch of other stuff going on we think timing attacks are impractical uh they developed their own elliptic curve 
technology for this. It does not use RSA certificates, which is one of the sort of the controversial po- uh, points. And they've said, look, it's just it's too time consuming to generate RSA, an RSA set of keys in JavaScript. Elliptic curve technology is vastly faster and equally secure. So, uh, and let's see, it's the, right now, GNU PG, is it 2.1 beta, and it supports the elliptic curve keys that end-to-end generates. And I can't remember the other one. The uh, the other major path, I think the the semantic version of PGP, the latest one also supports it. So older versions don't, yet you can use their keys in end-to-end. You just can't create new ones in end-to-end. So so end-to-end, which again, for clarification, is Google's browser-based built, sort of built-in PGP, it'll only create elliptic curve public keys, but it will happily import and use traditional RSA keys with no problem. It just won't make its own. And um, the the current versions of PGP, I guess it's when 2.1, when GNU PG gets out of beta, then they'll figure they'll, they'll, they'll feel it's it's stable and safe and good to go and it does support the elliptic curve uh, crypto also. So I see this as a move forward for I mean th- there's a there's probably a certain class of user where the barrier of just management and like you know the the Glenn Greenwald effect where it was so difficult <laughs> for for Snowden to get him to be using PGP that their interaction was delayed for a long time if this existed then it would have been trivial for him to to securely decrypt messages from someone else so even if it wasn't a full time solution if it was there for the the times when you absolutely have to have secure end to end encryption then then this is i think an interesting experiment at the very least and Again, it's one of the many things Google is doing that I think is just, re- you know, really terrific. So SSL was back in the news this week. Um, a, I think it was seven problems were found, disclosed, and patched. Um, several of them were DTLS. That's the, that's the UDP transport TLS. And I meant to do a search just to see who's using that currently. I mean, it's it makes sense to have secure a secure layer on top of UDP, but that's not been available traditionally. So you know, it's been it's been TLS on top of TCP, which is what all of our web browsers and web servers use. So what was found was a couple different crashes, you know, so-called denial of service attacks where you can put things in an infinite loop on the client. So like if you connected to a insecure DTLS server, and again, I meant to find out like what one would be because I don't know, don't know of any right now, but 
So this is sort of still in the theoretical end. There was a way that it could crash your client. It's like, oh, okay, that's not good. But, you know, it's not the end of the world. What was the end of the world was the major new problem found, which was, again, lots of caveats. Only if you had an, a vulnerable open SSL stack on each side of the connection. So you'd have to be connecting your open SSL-based client with an open SSL-based server, both vulnerable, then a man in the middle who could intercept traffic could spoof some cipher change messages, which when inserted into the handshake at just the right time could, and they sort of said coyly, they said, create a key material downgrade. Well, yes, null keys, essentially. <laughs> so that's quite a downgrade. You know, when I first read it, I thought, oh, okay, so they can like push you down in the security of, of the suite, the security suite that gets negotiated. No, it's worse than that. You could have null keys, essentially, you know, no encryption. Now, um, the good news is, no one is known to be exploiting it. The latest version has been updated and no longer has this problem. Um, and it was Adam Langley's uh, posting uh, he, uh, on his imperialviolet.org um, blog. He blogged about it immediately. And looking back at the oldest source he could find, which was 10 years old, uh, I'm sorry, 15 years old. He couldn't find any open SSL code older than that. But in the oldest one that was 15 years old, the problem was there. So it's always been there. And, you know, it's a very subtle protocol attack, which is, you know, now been fixed. So um, e so here's another example of of subtle problems that exist in incredibly complex software which smart people find. And we hope smart people will find them and report them so they can be fixed and people can patch before the bad guys find out. I mean, this is, this is the reality of today's model, which is, this is, again, this is why, as I was saying last week, I'm so annoyed, distraught, really, over the way the legal system is imposing itself in this loop because this is, it's not good if researchers cannot do this research. This, having this process, this feedback loop where, where security systems can be examined for problems where benign researchers then tell the people who are who are vulnerable about the problem in order to fix it and not have them in danger of being sued as a consequence. Because, I mean, all of our experience says, unfortunately, this is the way the system works. It's not the way we wish it worked, but it's the way it does work. And, and we need that feedback. 
And unfortunately, the legal system is really threatening. I mean, re researchers can choose what they want to do. They don't have to do this. They don't have to expose themselves to legal attack. So if legal attack is there, if the potential is there, researchers will research something else. And our security system, as it actually functions today, will stop functioning in as good a way. And unfortunately, this leaves... Our, our systems a lot more vulnerable. So this is this is not a good direction that we're seeing. However, an in, an example of a really clever good direction, I thought. Um, I don't know if you covered this in your last podcast, Leo. Uh, MacBreak was the news that iOS version eight is random is deliberately randomizing its Wi-Fi MAC addresses. Very cool thing. Um, one of the things that has been known is that when cell phone carriers with Wi-Fi enabled, not, not the cell connection, the Wi-Fi connection, are being tracked as they wander around. There have been department stores that purchased devices to identify customers from the MAC address, which is broadcast by the, by the Wi-Fi in cell phones. Uh, there were some stories about, I mean, weird things like recycling containers in the UK had hidden Wi-Fi receivers that were being used to track people. Um, and of course, as we know, a MAC address is supposed to be a globally unique IP, which is which is the well, not IP, sorry, globally unique identifier. It's forty-eight bits divided into two twenty-four-bit chunks, uh, and one chunk is the manufacturer's ID, and the second chunk is is a serial number unique within that ID. And so, for example, if you use um, a, a, a wire sniffing tool, it'll show you the manufacture of the Ethernet adapter, and which is obtained from the, the, the first 24 bits of the MAC address. And the idea is that on any Ethernet, you ha it's the MAC addresses which is used for routing Ethernet packets, even if... IP protocol is being carried by those ether the underlying ethernet packets the the IP is sort of the, the is is like a higher level addressing the actual physical address is the mac address and so those are traditionally fixed every device manufactured by every manufacturer has a unique mac address so what apple what 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 a a researcher discovered in the last couple days about version eight of iOS, a new feature in version eight is that when the device it went when an iOS eight device is not associated with an access point or a hotspot, that is when it's just in that mode, for example, where it lists all of the ones that it can see and asks you if you want to connect. You know, that requires Ethernet, you know, Wi-Fi Ethernet transactions 
And for those, iOS 8 makes up a MAC address. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not actually communicating. I wonder it's if that's going to break anything. I'd probably not. Um, I, I you're not making I an active connection, so it's not. Cor correct. Yeah. And, I mean, we, we've known this for a long time that all devices broadcast SSIDs, they broadcast MAC addresses. That's why MAC address filtering is ineffective. Well, and that's what Google's positioning system that they famously got into such trouble for. I mean, when the little Google bot is driving around your neighborhood, it's the MAC address of your router that it's logging because that's fixed. And you that's change the, the SSID. Right. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so anyway, so the idea is that what this does is it just it just fogs your your identity as you're casually walking around. It you know all of those interchanges where it's just it's just you know having a a, a non associated dot, sort of pre association dialogue with the hotspot, it just uses a fake MAC address. It just randomizes them, which is just kind of a cool feature. I imagine that, you know, that'll be added to Android when the idea catches on. Because it's a sort of, it's a, it's a nice thing to do. And so it's nice, again, to see that Apple is, is thinking in this direction. Small change, but, uh, you know, an privacy enhancement. And Of course, I their iBeacon's probably announcing their location pretty... I saw <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> they have an alternative some, method. <laughs> yeah, I saw some dialogue suggesting that, well, yes, but this is a way for Apple to say, ah, well, if it's you theater. want to track our users, use iBeacon, which is our technology it's for theater. doing that. Yeah. That's good. I mean, it's nice to be able to turn that on. Okay, so the register. Um, just so full of it. Um, the headline was, Redmond is patching Windows 8, but not all caps, Windows 7, say security bods. Um, they said, and then the subhead was, new tool checks differences could lead to zero-day bonanza. <laughs> and, and, and it's not just said, the register. I mean, others are reporting this too. Well, well, yes. And, well, is it others are reporting it or are they reporting what the register reported? Because maybe they are. I mean, it was at a conference in Heidelberg, but nobody picked up on it until the register did, so... Yeah. yeah, I guess the register so, gets credit. So the register says Microsoft has left Windows 7 exposed by only applying patches to its newest operating systems. Okay, but they're not talking about XP here. They're talking about 7. Researchers found the gaps after they scanned 900 Windows libraries and uncovered a variety of security functions that were updated in Windows 8, but not in 7. They said the shortcoming could lead to the discovery of zero-day vulnerabilities. The missing safe functions were part of Microsoft's dedicated libraries, IntSafe and StirSafe, as in StringSafe, that help developers combat various attacks. Researchers Moti Joseph, formerly of WebSense, speculated Microsoft had not applied fixes to Windows 7 to save money. Why is it, he asks, that Microsoft inserted a safe function into Windows 8, but not Windows 7? The answer is money. Microsoft does not want 
to waste development time on older operating systems, and they want people to move to higher operating systems, Joseph said in a presentation at the Troopers 14 conference. And I was hoping that that was not his Boy Scout troop. <laughs> okay, so here's what that is. Many, many people were worried and concerned about this and tweeted it. This is nothing. This is these 900 Windows libraries, okay? Well, this is just the API foundation, the, the, the function foundation offered by the operating system. And it's true that, as we know, many of the functions that programmers use can be used in an unsafe fashion. When we talk about buffer overrun, the one of the common things that's done is a string copy where you copy one a string from like the URL into a buffer. Well, strings are typically terminated with an with a zero, a, a zero character, a so-called null termination. That so a a simple-minded string copy will copy every byte from the source to the destination, one after the other, until it hits a zero. The null terminator saying, I'm at the end of the string. So the a, a programmer unaware of security will allocate buffer space often on the stack because in fact when in 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 C if you just declare variables in a function they're allocated on the stack by default that's that's how these problems occur so then a hacker says ooh i'm going to give the guy a really really long string much longer than is reasonable much longer than is like in the spec and so what happens is the programmer the insecure authoring programmer allocates enough buffer for the string he expects. The bad guy gives him a string that he doesn't expect and overwrites the amount of buffer allocated on the stack. And unfortunately, since the stack is shared with not only with data on the stack, but return addresses, it's possible to put to when you overwrite the stack to change the return addresses which have been stacked there, causing the function to go where it wasn't meant to go. Thus, buffer overrun and so-called return-oriented programming, ROP, exploits. How do you fix that? In the string copy, you add another term, which is size of destination buffer. STRN copy. And the original string copy didn't have it. Right. The new one does. And so Microsoft has been adding new intrinsics, is what they're called, you know, new low-level functions and encouraging programmers to use them. So Windows 8 has more of them than Windows 7 which has more of them than XP, which has more of them than 2000. You know, this is they're always adding them. And so they're not updating them because they didn't exist in Windows 7. And, you know, yes, I mean, it's it's annoying that that we're using a commercial operating system 
that Microsoft keeps obsoleting in order to generate upgrade revenue rather than a non-commercial operating system where they just fix everything <laughs> and, and add things to it and everyone gets the updates. But that's not the world we're in. We're in a, you know, Microsoft is a for-profit organization. Consequently, if you want the latest and greatest goodies, you need to use the latest operating system. And programmers have to use those new tools. If you're just using Windows 7 code on Windows 8, then you're not using any of the new libraries. I'll be surprised, in, in fact, if that has any effect whatsoever. Because if any programmers want their code to also run on the older OSs to be, you know, backwards compatible, they can't use the new functions. And so in their libraries, they say only use things from XP and earlier, which turns off Windows 7 and 8 improvements because the developer wants it to run on all of the systems. So again, this was, first of all, you know, complete nonsense from the register um, and also nothing to worry about. Nothing like they said where Windows 7 was no longer being updated because Microsoft, you know, wants to save money. It's not being, it's not being updated. True, because Microsoft wants to make money by selling Windows 8, which has more features, which are probably not being used. So, a <laughs> big deal. Um, so, the first, I, 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 one of the, um, Twitter channels I follow in the, uh, one of my accounts, which I use for following, which of course is famously not SGGRC. People say, you don't follow anybody. Well, I follow lots of people, just not there. Um, uh, the, it's L-A-C-N-I-C is the Latin America and Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on where you live and how you pronounce it, uh, registry. They have, there was a mushroom cloud with a lot of red heat, uh, which is the, the icon for the, uh, for where the uh, end of IP4 address space is tweeted from. They posted an announcement that there were no more IPv4 addresses in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, it's actually not quite true. Uh, the subhead said Latin America and the Caribbean have entered the IPv4 exhaustion phase. Turns out this is all phased. The delay in deploying Internet Protocol version 6 in our region is cause for concern. So this was this morning, this was today, they, they said the Internet Address Registry for Latin America and the Caribbean, the organization responsible for assigning Internet resources in the region, announced the exhaustion of its IPv4 address pool and expressed its concern regarding the fact that operators and governments throughout the region are delaying the deployment of Internet Protocol version 6. LACNIC reported that its pool of available IPv4 addresses reached the, and this is why it's not none, but they are down to just 4,000,000 
194,302 mark. And that this has triggered stricter internet resource assignment policies for the continent. In practice, this means that IPv4 addresses are now exhausted for Latin American and Caribbean operators. The CEO of LACNIC said, This is an historic event. The fact that it was anticipated and announced doesn't make it any less significant. From now on, LACNIC and its national registries will only be able to assign very small numbers of IPv4 addresses. And these will not be enough to satisfy our region's needs. Since it began operating in 2002, the organization has assigned more than... Okay, so now 2002, now we're in 2014, so 12 years. So in the last 12 years, the organization has assigned more than 182 million IPv4 addresses throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. So they've assigned in 12 years years, 182 million. They now have remaining four. And obviously, the demand and the rate of assignment has skyrocketed with Internet use in the last 12 years. So it's not even even if it were linear, this would be a problem. But we know that it's not. Then they, they uh, just finishing this, they said, as agreed by the regional community, now that only 4 million available IPv4 addresses remain, LACNIC's pool of IPv4 addresses is considered officially exhausted and the, quote, gradual exhaustion and new entrance policies have come into effect, introducing new procedures and requirements for those requesting resources. Now, the only thing I could find, because I wanted to do some more digging to figure out what that actually meant, because it sounds sort of kind of ominous, the gradual exhaustion and new entrance policies. Among other things, you now, individuals have to demonstrate a need for IPs. This is something, um, shoot, there's a term for it, an, an IP... Uh, like request substantiation form or something like that. I have always had to fill one out when I've set up uh, co-location relationships. When I originally had servers at Vario, um, I had to explain to them why I needed the block of IPs and essentially how I was going to use them. And the same thing with level three. Um, you know, they have them, but even 10 years ago, they were saying, you know, we'll, we, we'll give you some, but you just have to prove that you need them. And so now what's happening is this is for the first time, you know, end users are going to have to demonstrate a need. And no doubt they're going to have to demonstrate why they can't run behind NAT. And so what we'll start seeing is, you know, their answer for that is we need to run servers. Because it's, you know, a server on an IP is still the way the Internet works. Whereas, you know, huge numbers of clients can all run with local addresses behind uh, behind uh, network address translation. Um, 
And so this is, you know, continuing this interesting story that we've been watching on this podcast for a surprisingly long time. You know, that they, you know, the sky is falling and we're running out of IPv4 space. Well, no. Um, and as we get closer to that, we start making, you know, suddenly IPv4 space becomes increasingly valuable. We have seen stories of people voluntarily relinquishing their huge, you know, slash eight networks, you know, like a whole first number, like a dot five. Dot five used to be unallocated. Famously, that was what Hamachi was using. And that was actually not ever used by anyone. Um, And so now it's in use. Um, And it's still the case that there is a ton of non-routed IPv4 space. And I think as IPv4 space gets tighter, you know, several things will happen at once. There'll be more pressure to move to IPv6. And it may well be that at some point, people will have no choice but to, for new allocations of IP space to be in version 6 space, not version 4. But the truth is, there's still a lot of unused version 4. And so there will certainly be some pressure on people who are hoarding their current V4 space to prove their need. And registries may start pulling it back. And and the way that would be done is they will simply say, okay, look, you're sitting here squatting on version 4 like on a slash 8 network or a slash 24, depending on the way you think about it. But normally, you know, the idea being that only the first digit is is fixed and you have all of the other three digits in your IP space. And so what's, what someone could say would be, you have six months to push all of your users to one end of that, and then we are going to stop routing three quarters or five eights or who knows, you know, we're going to stop routing what you're not using to you and make it where and put it back in the pool. And mark my words, a couple of years from now, we'll probably be having stories, uh, you know, talking about, you know, basically people being forced to give up their space um, uh, in order to uh, bring that back into the pool and reissue it. This is a great Wikipedia page on slash eights that are still yes. owned by various corporations like HP and Deck. Apple has its own. Does 18 HP dot. have two? Doesn't it like fourteen and fifteen? I They've think got, is HP. Uh, Apnic has fourteen. Well, some you okay. know, level three has at least two. Uh, but you can make a case for level three. It's it's the uh, individual, like you know. Apple having a, or AT and T or well, well, I guess they're an ISP. Uh, yes, and 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 for example, when you say level three has two, well, and I'm occupying a them. little. Tiny, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <right>. I'm <laughs> occupying a. I have right. sixteen IPs out, out out of there. But why does Merck? See, why does Merck, the f- big pharmacy company, have fifty yes. four dot? I mean, it, you know, that's crazy. Yes. You know, that is absolutely yeah. wrong. And yeah. believe me, there's there's conversations being held with them. Oh yeah, saying okay, you know, and, and the idea is they have no, you know, I mean, this is a public resource, and so, so, the the the, the story I told of how this is going to happen is that they will be told 
that they're simply losing a chunk of their space. And so they'll be given time, but they just ha- they're going to have to push all of their users because no one needs, you know, that's 16 million IPs. They're, they just don't need them. And so they just push their users to one side, one end of that block, and then the block will be chopped. They can still have their, their 56 dot, but not star dot star dot star. You know, it'll be 56 dot five or one. And, and thank you. We're going to take back all the other ones because they're just, you know, there's just no need. It's just no need for them to have it. Um, I did note an interesting piece about Netflix uh, talking about bandwidth stuff. There, we got one interesting Q&A. Actually, I two. love this. <laughs> What they're doing is so great. Yep. So now what Netflix is beginning to do is they're showing poor connection notices to their users through their Netflix apps at their end. So um, so um, Verizon's users first started seeing these. And Verizon was very unhappy. Um, and it, but however, it became clear that it wasn't just Verizon. That is, Verizon wasn't being singled out by Netflix. It was bandwidth based. And so in Netflix official policy, they said their goal in doing this is to help their subscribers understand when their experience is degraded based on their network provider as opposed to their home Wi-Fi, et cetera. See, Verizon, Comcast, and the rest count on the fact that customers are going to blame Netflix. They're not going to blame their ISP. So this is Netflix's way of saying, uh, maybe not. Maybe it isn't our fault. Right. I think right. this is and great. So, and I don't, you know, Verizon's threatened to sue. I don't see how, on what grounds. No, I, and so, and actually Net, Netflix has covered themselves. They said when Netflix feels that many clients are experiencing congestion on a certain segment of a certain ISP's network, they will display the message for clients who are, are experiencing degradation. So what Netflix is doing is they're, they're looking at the traffic flow. You know, they've got a client that is receiving at their end. And so it's able to, you know, to have, you know, in the same way that, you know, any interactive application does. It's able to say, hey, the stream is is jerky. The stream is having gaps. And so they're able to the client is able to close the loop back to Netflix. And that and then Netflix is able to use that as instrumentation, you know, endpoint user point instrumentation in order to notice that all that the certain set of clients all in a certain region are having this problem and then say to the client, you know, to tell the user, um, we got a problem with your ISP, so just FYI. Verizon got them to stop by saying, you can't prove that it's us. It could, there's other things it could be. And they're, they're, they have a point there, right? Yep, yep. I mean, um, there's lots of things that could cause that. Well, okay, so... You referred to, I think it was two weeks ago, probably during our net neutrality, the level three blogs. What a great post. Yeah. Yes. And so I I had never, I I had them in my notes. I didn't transfer them, but 
they're in today's show notes. And there's two really good blogs by Level 3 that I wanted to share with our audience. And in fact, I'll, of course, you know, I'm in a Level 3 data center. So, um, and Level 3 is, you know, Tier 1 bandwidth provider. One of the blogs, uh, there are some charts in them which are really telling because um, they demonstrate the saturation of a so-called peering point. And uh, Leo's got them on the screen right now. The lower one shows no saturation. That is, there, there is a, there's a daily cycle. So you can see this daily cycle by date where in the evenings when there's more call for bandwidth, the, the bandwidth utilization goes up and it just, just touches the total carrying capacity of that point. And this is a hundred gigabit fiber or switch or, you know, a peering point. And then it goes back down again and it goes back up. The point is that because at the, even at peak, that particular point, and in the diagram, this is a Washington DC located point. It's, it's thanks to a little bit of buffering, it never actually drops packets. But the first chart is a, is a completely different example. And this one is an interconnect in Dallas showing the week of April 13th, where uh, unfortunately, and this is also, this is a 100 gig interconnect saturated. And it is saturated for like three quarters of the day. So only at the minimum point in the day is there no packet loss? And and remember, I mean, we've talked about this extensively in prior podcasts, the way routers have buffers. And so packets are inherently sort of coming in sporadically from all kinds of different directions. And so you need to have some buffering because the, the, the output of the router is going to be a connection with a fixed rate. So what you want is you want the average bit rate coming in. It, it must be the average bit rate coming in must be less than the fixed bit rate going out. Clearly. And, and so the buffer takes the, you know, it, it smooths out short term variations so that so that it gets maximum value from the output by keeping it going. So the buffer is good for for utilizing your outbound bandwidth and it's and and it's necessary because you might have bursts where more is coming in briefly than is able to go out so the buffer holds it and is bleeding it out at the constant rate of its output connection but it but it's so this is one of the fascinating aspects of this this packet based internet where where Due to this web of connectivity and, you know, users clicking on links and browsers downloading resources. I mean, just everything is just sort of kind of happening, hap happening at, at random times. The, the, 
the inbound buffers collect that and then keep the links busy. But, and here's the problem. I mean, this is the entire problem. At any given point, the router has fixed bandwidth output. And if more is coming in than is able to go out, it has to drop some. It has, it, you know, the buffer fills up and more comes in. And a huge amount of science, amazing science, has gone into the optimal buffering policies. And in fact, this notion of quality of service, the packets can be tagged. They, they can carry a QoS tag, which essentially gives them priority. It says, you know, I'm a VOIP. I am extremely time sensitive. Move me to the front of the buffer. That doesn't hurt anything because it, it means that that packet won't get delayed as it waits in line in the queue for its turn to be transmitted. It would have occupied buffer space anyway, so the QoS just moves it to the front in order to minimize delay. So this particular, so the idea is that, that this flow, as it's called, tagged with this quality of service, is saying, I am delay sensitive, please don't make me wait. Other types of quality of service might be, I'm not important. If you have to drop something, choose me. And other packets can say, I am really important. Please, if other packets don't say anything, drop them. Don't drop me. And so, obviously, this is all subject to abuse. And a lot of this is essentially everybody behaving themselves and playing by the rules. And at the top level, generally, that happens. And what we're seeing is the breakdown of some assumptions, which we'll get to in our in our our Q and A here. That is the assumptions which are breaking down as the net is getting stressed, uh, and what that means. Uh, really quickly in miscellaneous stuff, uh, I wanted to correct something. I've been talking about Chrome being so bloated, and it was during the my playing with Chrome a lot during the um, uh, uh, certificate revocation work that I fired up Chrome on a different machine and it didn't occupy nearly as much memory because I didn't have any add-ons installed. And I thought, what? Hmm. And so I removed a bunch, which I had just sort of accumulated and it went right back down. So... Uh, and I didn't have like the kitchen sink in there. I just had a couple things, but boy, they were big. And so, <laughs> which ones in I particular? I don't remember. I I think I still have. Yeah, I, I I don't remember. But but for what I just I I've been saying that, and I wanted to just say, hey, turns out it was the add-ons. Chrome with no add-ons, it does launch a bunch of processes, but that's actually done to get process isolation for security purposes. So, you know, I can forgive them that. Um, and I'm beginning to see people talk about add-on bloat. That is, there was a, an interesting 
called HTTP Switchboard that allows you huge amount of control, much more so, for example, than NoScript allows over on Firefox. And the developer was specifically saying, you know, it's much less large than most Chrome add-ons. So people are beginning to be aware that that's where some of this bloat is coming from. So for what it's worth, if, if anybody else, I have had other people say, oh, yeah, God, my, my Chrome is just huge. It's like, well, it's probably your add-ons. So I wanted to mention that. Also, do people Jenny really, lies? I mean, it's more an aesthetic thing, because really, don't we have enough memory nowadays? I, well, <laughs> you've got eight for gigs example, of RAM on a lot of these machines. Really? Jenny is unable. Jenny is unable to run Chrome and a a tool that she uses for editing uh, screenplays at the same time. She always had been, but it stopped. She stopped being able to use both. And because I know she's a heavy Gmail user, I said, and she uses Chrome. I said, ah, try closing because she was getting errors. And you know, she of course said, hey, what's going on here? And I said, try closing Chrome. And yep, no problem at all. Huh. So, you know, so it is the case that uh, that you, we can still be running out of memory. And it's just wrong, Leo, you know. <laughs> that's that's really it. It's just <laughs> says the assembly language unesthetic. program. <laughs> it's yeah. taking so much RAM. Because exactly. modern operating system. I have not seen an operating system run out of memory in a long time. Have you? I know Jenny's yeah. did, but I wonder about that screenwriting app, frankly. OS is yeah. don't run out of memory it, anymore. It's and it's I'm no no doubt that it's a small vertical app that yeah, uses well a written. lot of memory. Yep. Yeah. But still, I mean, seriously, um, operating systems handle this well. Usually, the worst that'll happen um, is you go to swap, and it slows correct. down. Correct. I haven't seen an I haven't seen an OS or an app say I don't have enough memory to run in literally 15 years. Well, I, it happens to me all the time. Really. That I'm running out of virtual memory. Yeah. Virtual memory. Well, you know, like, you know, RAM. R RAM, but I'm still on a 32-bit OS, so I've got a 4-gig limit. But again, 4 gigs. But that's, what happens? When, you, when you're running an app that runs out of memory, it says, I don't have enough memory to run? Yeah, I get a balloon pops up on the desktop and says, OS need, is running low on memory. You need to get a modern on, operating on, system, my on friend. On memory. That's, that's really sad. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't go to the VM, huh? It doesn't. Rather the uh, swap. I, I can know. see it would slow it down. I'm, I'm just telling you what happened. All right. All right. Maybe we'll get you. Memory. We'll get you on Windows Vista. That'll fix this. <laughs> no, no, not Vista. I'll skip that. So uh, we saw Edge of Tomorrow and absolutely loved it. Just for what it's worth, for sci-fi people, I know Tom Cruise did it again. I thought it was absolutely a, a fabulous ride. Wonderful movie. You know, my favorite movie of last summer uh, was Oblivion, and th this was a, another great piece of science fiction. So, unfortunately, I can't say the same about Halt and Catch Fire. I am tolerating it and watching it, but oh boy, it's uh, you know, it's a little annoying. We've had two two episodes now, and yikes. Um, and lastly. A, uh, a Spinrite update. Uh, I got a nice note. And actually, he, he saw the show notes and, and tweeted me, thanking me for sharing his testimonial in today's podcast. And I thanked him for the testimonial. This is Eric Elsinger in Sweden. He, uh, his subject was, Spinrite saved me from going crazy. He said, for a while now, 
My computer has freezed up from time to time. It completely stopped responding to input, and the hard drive light was on constantly. It usually lasted for 10 to 30 seconds, and then all was fine again. But lately it started to do that at least once every five minutes, which was driving me crazy because I got interrupted all the time with whatever I was doing. I looked in the Win8 task manager, so not an old system, or I guess he maybe he could have upgraded an old system. But he says, the Win8 task manager, and saw that during the times the computer freezes, the operating system hard drive is at 100% use, but the response time is zero milliseconds, and it's not reading or writing. But the hard drive has to be doing something since the hard drive light on the computer is fully on. Has the hard drive encountered a sector it can't read and it's just retrying it until it gives up? I've had SpinWrite for a while now, and I thought I would give it a try. But I needed my computer for work, so I waited to run it until school was over. After SpinWrite was finished, I booted Windows. And now, after using my computer for a day, I can say that the freezing problem is completely gone and cured and Spinrite saved me from going crazy, Eric. And uh, I'll just say that this is, a, you know, we hear this all the time. Um, people complain that their computers are booting more slowly. They're just not operating as quickly as they used to. Drives, as we have discussed, can have serious problems which really go unnoticed because they try to manage it try to manage what's happening inside them as best they can. And ultimately what happens is you'll turn your machine on and it'll say no operating system, operating system not found, missing operating system, or it'll go into a boot loop or something. Running SpinWrite on systems which aren't obviously screaming that their hard drive has died often fixes problems that are less obviously about the hard drive, but, you know, actually are. So, again, valuable preventative maintenance. Then thanks for sharing that, Eric. Hey, let's take a little break. We've got questions for you, Steve. Ten from our great audience, and uh, we'll get to those in a second. But first, a word from our friends at Citrix who do a very nice little program that I use eh, at least every week called ShareFile. ShareFile is, solves a problem we all have. And uh, if you listen to this show, you know that one of the problems with sending email attachments is is security, plain and simple. You send email attachments, uh, you're you're also running, uh, you know, the the risk that you could be overflowing somebody's inbox. Nowadays, attachments are so big that's not unusual. Bounce backs resulting in bounce backs, or worse, the guy can't get any other email. <laughs> he got yours. That's just rude. Viruses are frequently attached. And, of course, it's not secure. As you send over the uh, network, everybody can read it. It's like sending a postcard. So what do you do? Well, you don't send attachments. You use ShareFile instead. In business, there's plenty of cases where you want to send spreadsheets or invoices or PDFs, presentations, and that kind of thing. But sending them as email attachments, well, I think I've made a pretty good case for not doing that. ShareFile makes it very simple. Your uh, attachments are sent not as files but as secure links you can send files of almost any size without bounce backs. You decide who has access to your files and for how long. 
You'll get notifications when those files are downloaded. Plus, you could password protect for optimal security. It's just great. There are ShareFile mobile apps, too. You know, it's really nice. I have a, a ShareFile folder on my desktop that's synchronized. Uh, and then whenever I want to send a file from that folder, or let's say I forget to send a file because I send out radio ads every week to the stations, and they call me and they say, Leo, we didn't get your ad this weekend. I go, uh-oh. But fortunately, I fire it up on my mobile, and I say, share that file, and it's done. It's really sweet. I'll show you my ShareFile uh, uh, web. Now, this is the web interface. Of course, as I said, I have these folders on my desktop, so they're automatically synchronized. Notice it's got the Twit logo. It's, it's, brand, it's you know, it's... Uh, it's not Citrix branded. It's uh, Twit branded. I can request a file. I can send a file. I can give users permissions, too. So uh, let's go to the Premiere folder, for instance. And I've given some of the people I work with permissions to access that folder and to get notifications, upload alerts when I put files in that folder. Now I don't even have to send them an email anymore. ShareFile is awesome. I want you to try it for 30 days. If you're attaching files to email or the people in your company are attaching files to email, stop and try ShareFile. 30 days free right now at ShareFile.com. Uh, I would ask a little bit of a favor, and I'll show you what I'm talking about here. If you go to the ShareFile site, um, there are about three different buttons you can press on the site that say uh, try it free. <laughs> See, try it free, start your free, scroll all the way up to the tippity top of the page, and you'll see the one I want you to use. It's the fine print. I'm sorry. It's hidden at the top. Podcast listeners, click here. Do me a favor and click that one and use the offer code security now. That way Steve gets credit and you will get 30 days free of ShareFile. Choose your industry too because ShareFile can be customized for use in many different industries. Compliant with regulations in industries like the financial services industry. So SEC regulations are adhered to. Medicine so the HIPAA compliance is there. Uh, all it's real. I, I always use uh, tech services. That's what I am. Tech <laughs> sharefile.com. Try it free for thirty days. Use the offer code security now, and you will receive our undying thanks. All right, are you ready, Steve Arino, for some questions? You betcha. Well, I've got them. You sent me a bunch of questions, and we're ready to answer them here. Starting with question number one. Let me. Switch out of the show notes. <laughs> That's a good place to start. Well, I could start with question two, but then we'd have to backtrack. And I don't like yeah, that. Would... Samuel Johnson, famous diarist, follower of Boswell, writes. <laughs> I must... don't think that's our list. You don't listener, think it's though, him? But, uh, maybe, maybe somebody not. else, maybe? He says he's in New York City. Oh, yeah, you're right. Samuel Johnson's in London. He says he's confused by your bandwidth billing. You recently mentioned something about 95.5 and percentiles with the bandwidth you purchase from level 5. I'm sorry, level 3. But what about megabits? What about gigabits? Don't you don't you just have a connection, huh? Okay. So I, I did sort of breeze through that and this is interesting. This is cuz you don't buy bandwidth the same way normal people do. Uh well, actually I buy bandwidth the way data centers sell it and data centers sell it the way it should be sold ah normal people buy bandwidth based on yeah, dreams i give, I give <laughs> fantasies <laughs> i give so first i just got comcast business class and they say up to 100 megabits down up to whatever 10 or 20 megabits up and it's 200 dollars a month it's expensive 
That's that's how normal people buy it. Right. You, now you don't get but that. But remember, no, and remember that what we found was that when users, end users who had agreements like that actually tried to use it all. <laughs> they get in trouble. The IS, yeah, the ISP said, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, that's not what we meant. So when, you, when, when you're in a, a real data center, I mean, like, you know, any data center, this 95.5 is industry standard, is the way bandwidth is billed in data centers. And it, the way it works is interesting because, because there are two things that I pay for or two rates. There's something called the committed data rate or CDR. And that's sort of like, in general, it's, it's what my bill will be. That is, I will never be billed less than this, the so-called committed data rate. And I am free to use that data rate 24-7, literally. Uh, and, for example, for, for GRC, that's 10 megabits. That's I uh, used to be 15, but I, I just wasn't using nearly 15. So we brought it down to 10 to save me some money. Um, but there's also something called burstable data rate. And I have a 100 megabit connection to the level three switch. So although my committed data rate is 10 megabits, I am burstable to 100. Now that turns out to come in handy because say that somebody somewhere wants to quickly get a, a security now uh, audio file from us, or, or you know, some other large file like one one of the the videos we have on the site. Well, if they have high down rate download rate, they can they they can ask for the file, and they'll spike my bandwidth up above ten megabits, but get the file quickly and then they're done. So. The trade-off would be that they were clamped at 10 megabits and they'd still have to get the same total number of bits for the file. It would just take them longer. And so since I'm in a big data center and all of the connections running around are a gigabit or 100 megabits, it's like, well, you know, would, someone's going to get the file. They might as well have it quickly. Then they'll go away rather than make them hang around and so forth. But then the question is, how does level three support the infrastructure required for this burstiness? That is, if the entire infrastructure was just 10 megabits, that would be much less expensive for them, yet you wouldn't have the convenience of being burstable, of being able to sort of, you know, blast out a lot of data in a short time this, and then be done. This underscores why this is something that normal people don't do. You're a, you're serving. We're not serving. Correct. We're down we're the other end. You're this is Correct. you pay for and I pay for it this way on our servers as well. You pay for the price of having a server of delivery of offering data as opposed to right. consuming it. Right. 
So, so here, so what, what if I went over this 10 megabit so-called committed data rate for a certain amount of time? That is, I'm allowed to have bursts that go high, but how many? For how long? And how do you, how do you bill that? So the answer is as follows. They take one month, which is the billing interval, and they divide that into five-minute slices. And they count the number of bytes and multiply by eight to get the number of bits. So they count the amount of data interchanged in each five-minute slice. And so... So essentially, that's the average data transfer in a five-minute window for every five-minute window in the month. And that's going to give you a set of numbers of the, um, the bandwidth used in each of those windows. Then they sort them from maximum to minimum. And... They take the highest 5% and throw it away. So the highest 5% of the sorted array of five-minute windows is just forgiven, ignored. But the next highest one, that is the 95th percentile, is you are billed as if that was your data for the entire month. So one of the consequences of this is that in the old days, when people were unaware of this, sometimes they'd get hit with an unbelievable bandwidth charge. You may have heard of this sort of ha- anecdotally of this happening to people where like, like a company got hit with an, an insane bandwidth charge because this this that the five percent of the month turns out to be i don't remember i think it's 18 hours and so if in an entire 30-day month you had 18 hours scattered through the month at really high bandwidth Essentially, you would get charged as if that was the bandwidth you'd used the entire month. And if your burstable data rate fee is higher than your committed rate, and it typically is, and if it was like way higher, then, for example, if it was three times what, you, what your committed rate was – you could easily be hit with a bill that was four or five hundred percent of, you know, four or five times what you're normally charged. But this is this is the way all data centers bill. It's called 95.5 billing. Wikipedia's got an article. And I mean, it's, it's like that's the way it's done. And the this has been worked out years ago. And it turns out that it's it's the right formula for creating a facility which needs to be able, as, as Leo said, to serve data to customers, to be able to handle spikes and peaks, which are natural. You know, there's a daily cycle. There's event 
things that happen. Um, but this is the way, you know, the big boys pay for their data. Not, as Leo said, you know, the way end users do. Well, it raises an interesting question because this goes back two weeks ago to our conversation with Brett Glass, who uh, said that his customers uh, didn't want to pay what the bandwidth actually cost. I wonder if ISPs at some point might start charging this. I guess not. It doesn't make sense. Charge this way to uh, end users. Well, because then look, they could I mean, get paid for, in other words, it's tying how much you use to how much you pay as opposed to the flat rate pricing we currently have. And my example when we were talking was electricity. That's right. the way we pay for electricity. Right. You pay by people the bit. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, people know that if they run the, their AC during the summer, you're going to pay that more. Their, yeah. their bill's going to be higher. Yeah. And, and it does, it, now, the, the nice thing about that is it, it does shape behavior. Suddenly, air conditioning is not free. Right. So you it's, use it you know, less. Exactly. You, yeah. you open your windows more. Yeah, yeah. You try to do without it. You minimize your use. And so, um, anyway, this sort of le leads us right into our next question. Well, let's go to it then. Question two comes to us from Bill Sherwood of uh, Goldendale, Washington, which I always thought Chicago was a windy city. Turns out. Goldendale is the Windy City. <laughs> Who knew? So, so Bill says. I don't understand what Brett and Leo were fussing about concerning net neutrality. A content provider pays to get on the net, and a user pays to access it. Each pays according to usage. Simple. Done. <laughs> okay, so... Um, That's kind of what I was saying, to, but okay. This comes back to what I was saying about assumptions. Right. And... What's happened is, as the net has evolved, some original assumptions have begun to break down. So the ISP made an assumption which has turned out not to be true. And that is, users surf the web, they send and receive email, and from time to time they download files. Probably for most users, that's the case. But then, of course, famously, torrenting happened and people were connecting in a way that was new, that wasn't part of the original what a user does model that caused the breakdown of those assumptions. And, and then something like Netflix happened where television that was traditionally delivered over the air or by cable, which is a shared medium. Remember that, you know, cable works because it's got Channel 5 on it. And as anyone who wants to can tune to Channel 5 and suck it off of the common cable. But switching to an Internet model is a really changes things. And as we were discussing two weeks ago, so so now users are not surfing the web, you know, click and look at a page, click and look at a page or sending and receiving email. You know, they're streaming video in real time, which is a huge change in behavior. Now, on the transit provider side, this is something that that. We, that that bears on this because, for example, say that on one side we've got we've got Netflix, 
who's I think they use Cogent as their uh, as their data center provider. And on I'll say on the other side we have AT&T. And in the middle is level 3. Remember that the internet is a inter, is a network of interconnected private networks. So so the original assumption of the providers, the the bandwidth providers was we would do everyone would do free peering. That is they would peer their networks with each other. And the assumption again because this is all about assumptions, the assumption was that the value each provider receives from other providers carrying their customer's bandwidth would roughly equal the cost they incurred from carrying that other provider's. Now, imagine, though, that level three is sitting here with Cogent on one side and AT&T on the other. And there's just bandwidth going through, passing through level three's network. And it's like, well, okay, you know, fine. Except that at nighttime, this bandwidth rises to a level where level three's routers, the actual routers on the edges are no longer able to keep up such that the buffers inbound are spilling over and dropping packets. So first of all, I mean, it's, I don't want to, there's really no fault here. This is not about fault. It's, that the that a leg of the of the internet is being saturated because because as a coincidence of low of geography and this new model of usage which is users are watching television on the internet it the the net is being strained in a way that it never was before so, so here's level three that would like wants to let transit happen, yet its buffers are overflowing. Now, not only are packets being dropped for the, the, the TV watchers, but unfortunately, since packet dropping is generally non-discriminatory, level three's customers are, ha- are complaining that is, their traffic is being interfered with for no fault of theirs and no fault of level threes because, because it's all trying to get through this pinch point, which is being saturated by traffic that isn't originating in level three or, or coming to level three, just trying to pass through. But it's got to use that connection. So, so... One of the things that can be done, and I don't mean to single out level three, and they're not doing this as far as I know, but but there have been ISPs, you know, carriers that have, is 
they've said we need our traffic, our customers' traffic, to have priority. At that overflowing buffer, our our customers' traffic gets through. And, and so that's where suddenly people start getting upset because, because they're saying, okay, wait a minute, you're not treating all traffic the same now. You're discarding traffic preferentially and that's not fair and and so here's level 3 that is sort of as a courtesy letting this torrent go through and that's fine as long as there's room for it but if there isn't room for it then something has to give and and the people on either end say well install more routers make room and but and level 3 says why? This is not our traffic. This is just stuff going past. We're getting no value from it. So the point is, you know, without any side taking, without any what should we do, although I think everybody agrees we need to keep Washington out of this because Lord knows <laughs> legislators are not going to improve this. This is a breakdown of assumptions. It used to be that that the way the internet was being used, a set of original assumptions held, and they really don't any longer. You know, they've been at least at the best. These original assumptions are being strained, and you know, we'll see how it shakes out. It's not clear how it's going to. Question three comes from uh, Charles Woods in Katy, Texas. He brings us a blast from the past. Steve, could you provide an updated answer to my question way back in episode twenty-four, Q and A number three? Knowing what we now know from the Snowden information at the time, he asked, with U.S. government NSA eavesdropping and spying so much in the news. <laughs> oh, those were good times way back then. Do you really think that SSL, SSH and other things we think of as safe are truly safe from the folks who, you know, have this high end stuff and big computers like the NSA? Can't they just crack through strong encryption? Well, we know a lot more now than we did then. And I would say we, we still have confidence in things like SSL, SSH, and other things. That is, we have confidence in the technology. In fact, you could, could make the case that everything that's been released so far enhances our confidence because there's no mention at all yes. about being able to break through those things. Yes, everything we're seeing supports this concept of the weakest link. And we know that systems are porous, not because crypto breaks. In fact, I think it was uh, uh, Shamir, uh, he, was fam- he was famously quoted as saying, crypto almost never breaks, it's everything else. And so it's the glue, it's the connections, it's the fibers, it's the human factor. It's, you know, the the actual math is still secure, always has been. And and even, even where we now think the NSA may have been trying to soften some algorithms, you know, the, it, it was, you know, the, the math itself was good. 
it's just where it came from that was suspect or how, who, who chose those numbers that you're using? Where did those come from? So, you know, we're, you know, we've lost our innocence in the last year. And I think we, as an industry, we have far more appreciation for, for how large a budget the NSA has for how much they want to monitor the population. And, wow, look at the change in, in SSL over this period of time. You know, like now all these services that Fire Sheep was once able to penetrate only a few years ago are now HTTPS always, and users are much safer. So trust the math. Yeah. Question five comes from Robert Osorio, Lady Lake, Florida. Uh, Steve, I guess I teach my clients well, or maybe I'm just lucky. None of them had been hit by CryptoLocker. Well, until the other day. I teach my clients not to rely on their antivirus and to use common sense when dealing with email links and email attachments. Unfortunately, one of them got bit the other day, but it could have been worse. I don't like fancy antivirus solutions, and I steer way clear of Norton and McAfee's bloatware. Usually, I recommend free solutions for my residential clients. I guess he teaches, I would guess from his location, seniors how to use computers. Security uh, Essentials, that's the Microsoft solution. AVG, Avast, and Kaspersky or ESET Nod32 for businesses. Although he, like us, prefers the basic AV versions, not the loaded suites. Yep. Uh, this particular client just had Microsoft Security Essentials installed on a Windows 7 PC. MSE actually detected CryptoLocker and repeatedly removed it and killed the process repeatedly for 10 days, according to the logs. Wow. Like most Trojans, CryptoLocker yeah. has a second hidden encrypted component to restore itself after an antivirus app deletes the primary file and process. So while the antivirus could detect it, it couldn't permanently remove it. The client ignored the repeated detection and removal alerts. Uh, I had a lecture about that afterwards. However, uh, Microsoft Security Essentials did not uh, did slow down the progress of the Trojan. CryptoLocker hadn't gotten very far in the encryption process. It had only encrypted 500 files in the documents folder in 10 days, probably like half a file at a time or something. <laughs> There's a utility on bleeping computer that can list the files that have been encrypted. Apparently, MSE kept interrupting the Trojan and forcing it to restart. A pity my client decided to ignore the continual removal alerts MSE was giving. Sigh. Or I could have stopped it sooner. She only called me when she started having problems opening some Word documents. When turns out when Word opens or tries to open an encrypted doc file, it opens it as a text file that's full of gibberish. Fortunately, she had an off-site backup. Carbonite. Yay. So after I had assured myself the Trojan was removed, it was just a matter of restoring all the encrypted files working from the list I had generated. The virus works through the documents folder in alphabetical order, first the root, then the folders. It had only gotten as far as the uh, folder starting with C. I thought it was interesting. Even though MSE hadn't completely eliminated the Trojan, it did put up a serious roadblock to its progress that slowed it down dramatically. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's great good news. Yeah. yeah, and interesting feedback. I'm glad that MSE is able to catch it. Um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, this person had so many documents that 500 was a small fraction yeah. of what was in the, her My Documents folder. And the alphabetic list, I, the alphabetical order, I thought, yeah. was interesting. And I want that's why I wanted to share this specific information with our listeners because I know that 
from our feedback that they have encountered, if not CryptoLocker on their own site or on their own machine, uh, on others. And so I imagine some of that could help. I have to say, parenthetically, you know, I've used Gmail for ages. Um, I think we might even have talked about this, um, that the Gmail IMAP implementation is non-standard and not very compatible with a lot of the stuff I use. Never worked very well with Apple Mail. They really, Gmail you, wants you to use it in the web, period, yeah. in the web interface. Um, so I uh, went back to my old uh, IMAP provider, who I, who I dearly love, and I've had an account with them for 10 years now. And I'm using their for prim- them for primary email. But, but, but what it's done is it's surfaced how much crap I get that Gmail had been filtering, because Gmail's anti-spam is really uh. superb. So even, you know, and I have Spam Civ and Spam Assassin running, Spam Assassin running on the server, Spam Civ locally. I have very good solutions. But, you know, this stuff still gets through. And a lot of it, a a huge amount of it, is uh, phishing scams. I get four or five credit card offers every hour. And they all are HTML emails with a big button that says, you know, uh, thank you for being such a loyal American Express customer. We'd like to oh. give you an American Express card and things like that. And they're so convincing that I am amazed that any normal person doesn't just fall for them every day. I just despair yeah. um, because if you don't have really good anti, anti-spam, um, and pretty much that's Gmail, then you're seeing this Every day. And at some point, and you're rem- going to click on one. And remember, the the major breaches that we've heard about, for example, famously, the huge RSA breach, that was traced back to one secretary yep. who opened one file. Email. And that's all it took. Yep. Yeah. My mom sent me a note. She said, oh, I uh, send the fax again. I couldn't open it. And I went, oh, that's, that's not good. Fortunately, she's on a Mac as a limited user, right? So we, we, I know yeah. she's going to be safe. So I looked, and she's, and the email came from an email address called named fax at leoville.com, and it was a link to a Dropbox folder. Now, fortunately, Dropbox, I'm sure, is, keeps on this, and they see this happen all the time, and it had already killed the folder or killed the file. So she couldn't get it. But right. it looked like it came from me. It looked like it was a fax. It was a file in a folder in Dropbox. And she tried to open it. Had she not been running Macintosh as a limited user? And had Dropbox not deleted the file? So you just, yeah. I just think this stuff must happen all the time. Yeah. It's very depressing. Hey, let's. We will pause for Carbonite right now. <laughs> Since we got. It's a good time yeah. to mention Carbonite Online Backup. Those people uh, were very lucky and uh, also very smart because they had a good backup. And CryptoLocker is foiled by Carbonite Online Backup because Carbonite doesn't back up the encrypted files. It does file versioning on Windows, which means even if it did, you'd be able to go back. You know, if you can go back to a pre encrypted version. Carbonite is automatic, continuous, online backup. So if you're in a a small business, if you have a home computer, you've got to back up. You've got to do it, I think, automatically. And you have to do it off-site. And anybody who watches this show knows why. Because there's that, you know, when the backup's sitting next to the computer and there's a fire or, you know, somebody steals your stuff, you're going to lose it all. Off-site, encrypted, uses uh, encryption on the way up. As Steve has pointed out in the past, trust no one encryption is available in Carbonite. Uh, so only you hold the key. So it is absolutely private if you choose to run it that way. Very affordable, flat rate pricing. You pay once a year 
and they don't measure the data as much data as you have no matter how many computers you have they can do it for small businesses in fact small businesses especially should be doing this it, one and a half million users 50,000 business users trust carbonite with their files you want to try it two weeks free you do not need to give them a credit card just go to carbonite.com and use our offer code security now if you decide to buy after those two weeks you get two months free with purchase it's just $59.99 a year for everything on a Mac or a PC. It really is peace of mind protection. you got to back it up to get it back. Do it right with Carbonite. And a tip of the hat uh, to our last emailer. What was his name? Because uh, he obviously had taught his clients well. I'm guessing Robert told her about Carbonite. And uh, it saved her, saved her bacon. All right, moving along, Mr. Steve, to question six from Matt Rays. He wants to know about our podcasting microphones evening steve i'm curious about the mic you use for security now can you hear the difference i don't know <laughs> well and i just thought i'd give you an opportunity leo i looks like you're still using the heil oh, i see yeah. it in front of you you were with me when i won that heil yep that was at the first podcast expo in ontario california you were there you won podcast best security podcast twit won podcast of the year and the prize for the podcast of the year was this microphone a yeah, Heil, in a beautiful box. Oh yeah, wood box. Heil beautiful Sound PR40 microphone. I'd never heard of it, frankly. Never heard of Bob Heil. Uh, and uh, you know, as a radio guy, I'd used the RE20 and the RE27, the Electro Voice mics. I'd used uh, Audio Technica mics, very high-end Sennheiser mics, Shure mics. A lot of radio stations use those. Um, so I was familiar with kind of the big brand name radio mics. And I sat down. I think we used it on a podcast that day in. Ontario, and, uh, I, and I was playing with. <laughs> I went, yes, this, I remember, I remember, I remember that? that. The amazing bass response. Wow, this really sounds amazing. good. <laughs> yeah, and I right fell for next it. To the, yeah, I think they're really good mics. At this point, we, uh, of course, we know Bob Heil. I got to know Bob Heil as a result. And then remember, of I was I was traveling to Canada with them. I had a pair with me and goosenecks, and I, you know, when when you came up when with Heils. Yes, we. I brought Hiles up with me, and we we set up our little mini studio to do the podcast when we were still doing the Call for Help show in in uh, Toronto. Wow, yeah, yeah. So we're fans. We've been fans for a long time. Must be almost ten years now, and um, they are actually pretty affordable. A lot of podcasters use them. We send them to all our regulars. It's H E I L Sound dot com. He's an old-time uh, uh, rock and roll audio guy, he, uh, and he also was a ham for many years. Started make, He said, these ham mics suck. So he started making <laughs> ham audio, amateur radio mics, and then he started making uh, mics for, uh, for broadcasters. A lot of rock and roll guys. Charlie Daniels Band, all the mics are high on mics. A um, uh, lot of big bands do it. Wow. Um, he's, he's really good. So, yeah, Heil Sound. And I think it's around three hundred bucks. They're and not very expensive. What, what would you say the mic is known for? That is, if it had like a you know a personality or or a reputation. Well, the thing that's you you know kind of these are designed much like the Electro Voice RE twenties and twenty sevens. They're dynamic. Uh, that means they're unpowered, big coiled mics. So right. So it's actually a generator. Yeah. It's, it, 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 it's a, um, a coil moving over a over a magnet. So the sound pressure creates the electrical impulses 
right. that coil as opposed to a condenser mic. Which they tend to be very small. We still use condensers on lapel mics and mm -hmm. so forth. Uh, but they're powered, and they tend to be oversensitive, frankly. So the thing, mm -hmm. the reason I use these, A, because they sound good. With, my, with male voices particularly, I think they sound very good. But also they have really great what we call off-axis rejection. So if I turn the mic, yep. instead of speaking into it, if I turn it sideways, I immediately go off mic. And so yeah. what that means is noise in the noise in the room is very is twenty or thirty dB uh, down, so right. you don't hear it. So I don't need a soundproof room. You don't need us. Our hosts don't have to sit in a radio studio anymore. Right. Um, and I really I I'm, I'm a fan, and they're very affordable. I mean that's the point. Three hundred twenty. You really bucks. do get you get no room noise from yeah. these. I mean you hear me, but n none of the echo that you would normally get exactly. if you had a microphone in a room. None of that room tone. Of course, if there's garbage men emptying your trash, we hear that. <laughs> It's not impervious well, they're kind, they're kind to of, sound. They're kind of over they're there, that too. Way. So yeah, you know, maybe you work. should it's aim great. it that way next time they come. See how it, <laughs> see how it works. Heil is also the, ho the host of our show, Ham Nation, which is an excellent oh. uh, show and uh, a great success, by the way, on our network. It's a show for nice. hams. Um, and, uh, the, um, and those are people who like to talk? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> they, they, like, they like to they be in front of the camera. They love to talk. They're hams. Yeah. Here's the package we send people. John just handed me this printout from BSW Broadcast Supply Worldwide. You get the Heil microphone, the shock mount. The, they have a very good spider mount, which I see you're using as well. A boom, yep. which is you're also using, which keeps it uh, yep. off the table. Um, and the pop filter and the cable and all that 369. That is mine is actually mine is actually dusty, Leo. Now that I'm looking at it, it's like oh, oh and that's no the beauty of Heil. You never need to dust it. <laughs> you never need to dust it. Now, I've used Neumanns. I've used some of the best microphones in the world, um, and I just for day to day use these things are rock solid, and the whole network uses them. And many of our hosts, like Steve, we we like them yeah. to sound as good as they can. So thank you, Bob Heil. We need all the help we can get, and Heil provides it. Yes, we're going to Heil. Uh, thank you, Matt, for asking about that. Jeff Levy in Poughkeepsie, New York, wonders about drive spin-down. I use a laptop docking station to back up my internal drives to an external hard disk. My concern is I may be putting an external drive at risk if I power down the docking station and then withdraw the drive too quickly. How long should I wait, if at all, to handle the drive after powering down? You know, that's actually a great question. When I unplug a usb drive and pick it up there's still centrifugal force or centripetal yeah. force and it's it's like a gyroscope it's hard to handle like he says like a gyro torque is created if i move the drive with a platter still spinning uh, is that bad for the drive <laughs> so okay um drives never leave their heads on the normal data surface um, in the old days, drives would retract the heads, and there was actually there were ramps out on the edge so that the the actuator would pull the heads and they would hit these wedge shaped ramps that would that would lift the heads off the platter as they came away and then the reverse would happen when the drive was powered up first, the platters would spin. And then the heads would be rather gently lowered down onto the platter where the air bearing would keep the heads from ever touching the platter. 
what's now being done because that's an awful lot of mechanical and you know extra cost is that the heads are just moved into the middle they're moved into the hub and the idea is that you wouldn't want the heads on the outer edge because if the drive does receive any shock the platter which is anchored in the center would tend to to ring like a bell and it would it would vibrate and of course the center is anchored so the outer edge would have the the largest displacement as this thing is ringing and so the heads would be bouncing up and down consequently the heads are moved into the very center where there's the least movement so now relative to torque and and that that gyroscopic action the good news is the minute power is removed the the heads are safe they're either retracted and off the disc or put into the center where where, where they have the, the least opportunity for damage the other reason they're put into the center i should mention is the 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 the, the torque moment which exists when the when the disc is spinning up if it if a once the disc spins down the drives do come into contact with with the disc platter there can be just sort of a a, a a type of welding which occurs just due to the fact that you've got two super smooth surfaces in contact they can just sort of do a spot weld so by having the heads in as close to the center, the torque of the, of the motor has a much greater chance to break that weld than if the heads were way out on the, on the perimeter of the surfaces where they'd have a much stronger ability to keep the, um, the disc from spinning up. So as soon as the power is cut off, the heads are moved into the middle and essentially it's safe to move the drive certainly doesn't hurt to give it 30 seconds yeah. to spin down that's probably enough but immediately after as 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 leo has sensed and jeff as you have noticed when the discs are still spinning it's a little gyro in your hand it's so cool and you are putting you are pu- putting some torque on the bearings too, it's not but good for again it, but it's not it's as bad not it's good, good to know yeah right you're not crashing the heads no that's really good huh i'm glad he asked that I've been meaning to ask that about eight years. <laughs> meaning to ask you that. Uh, our last question, I'm sad to say, comes from Charles. Not, no, I'm sad to say it's our last question. I'm happy that it comes from Charles. Charles Miller in San Miguel de Allende, Guanajuato, Mexico. Beautiful town. Closes this week with something fun. Steve, the cute receptionist at the gym where I worked out, asked me what I listened to and could she put it on the sound system? I showed her the screen of my MP3 player. Later, I noted her searching online for a band by the name of Harvesting Entropy. (laughs) The title of our Security Now episode a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Wow. Got a kick out of that. That's very funny. It would be fun to play Security Now through the gym and uh, see how long it takes before people pass out. See how lost, how long their membership lasts. <laughs> yeah, what's, yes. that, what's going on right. here? Turn this, Jason. <laughs> Although harvesting em- entropy would be a good band name. I think Actually, I like it. Actually, that's a great band name. Yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 
Steve is at GRC.com. We talk about it all the time. It's where you can get the greatest hard drive maintenance utility in the world, Spinrite. Uh, you can also get lots of free stuff, including uh, Steve's uh, passwords stuff, his security stuff, uh, Shields Up, which has been in use now for, what, 15 years? How many long? For a long time. 10 years, anyway. Yeah, about 15 years, and I think we're at 59 million, if I remember. That's how many people have used it. That's incredible. Great way to test your router before you put it online. I did the other day. I got a new router from Comcast. And they blo- and they, it's interesting. They were blocking 139, ah. the, the bio, NetBIOS ports that uh, were how yep. I first met you. So it yep. all came around. Uh, you can also go there to get 16 kilobit audio versions of the show if your uh, bandwidth is limited. And uh, f- full, beautifully written, human written transcripts from Elaine Ferris, who writes them for Steve. Uh, those are all at grc.com. That's also where you can go to ask questions for future Q&As, grc.com slash feedback. And um, you can find out more about, you can, oh, uh, about Squirrel. You can find out, more, go to the, I was at the forums the other day looking at the forums. You saw the guy who posted what he thought was an Easter egg in the crypto locker announcement. Did you see that? A Latin phrase. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about conspiracy the, theories. I know. It's, uh, if you take the first, I don't know, first letters of the of the True Crypt, not Crypto Locker, True Crypt um, announcement. Of the True Crypt warning, and then you translate it. Or no, you, I think you, 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 ta- you take it, you translate it to Latin, and then you take the first letters of... The Oot. Latin version Oot of it? Is I think no say. Anyway, it, it works except that you can't take the whole word security. You can just take the S-E. And it says something like what? I don't know. Don't use this thing or something. I can't remember what it was. Uh, no, it, it somehow has the initials NSA in it, which is what right. freaked everybody out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was a uh, warning. Yeah. Anyway, I don't like it was real okay. credible, but... That's nah. the kind of things you learn <laughs> on the security forums at grc.com. If you want full audio, a full bandwidth audio or uh, HD video, SD video, we have that on Twit, twit.tv slash SN. And, of course, you can subscribe because it's a podcast and you can get a copy of it anywhere you get your podcasts or use our great apps on the Roku or the iPhone, the Android devices, Windows, everywhere you want to be. The apps are great. Thank you so much, Steve. We'll see. What are we going to do next week? Don't know. We'll. I'll, Don't I'll know. have something. I'll have something fun. But uh, the the uh, universe always manages to provide something. You know. So, it, apparently, it senses our need and provides a security disaster for us to cover. Um. So the uh, translation is. Let's see if I can find this. If you wish, use the NSA. Okay. I guess. It could be. Why would they do it in Latin? Yeah. Anyway. All right, Steve. We'll see you next week on Security. Thanks, my friend. Security.